I had to get that out. Is that you, Rona? My goodness. Um, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the morning that you've given us this day and the place, the time to meet. Thank you for all the brothers and sisters that are here in this, in this body that you're building in this church that you're putting together for your purpose, to serve you and do your works in this world. Father, we pray for your blessing on this word this morning, and we pray that you use it to, to teach us, but Father, use it to cause us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Mark 14 today. Um, that's where we were in Sunday school, so probably no big surprise. It has been a beautiful October, hasn't it? It's a little gray today, but by and large, it has been beautiful. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've had a lot of clear sky mornings, some crisp fall mornings. And I was thinking about this when we're, we're looking at Jesus, what he's about to do. And it's weird maybe, but, but I remembered back about 19 years ago, there was a crisp fall morning, and it was September 11th. And it was on that morning, there was a person named Fred Maroney. He, he was in New Jersey. He received word that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. Now, he was the superintendent of police for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, so his responsibility was the safety of the World Trade Center. He'd been working in New Jersey that morning, uh, but as soon as he got the call, he immediately went to the building. And he began working with the firefighters, the police, uh, the New York police, and his own police uh, to evacuate the buildings and stabilize things. And the last time that he was seen alive was in the stairwell on the 45th floor of Tower One, where his office was. He was helping to usher people out. Big boss, boss of the whole police department. And he was guiding people out one by one. He could have set up a command center remotely and safe, and could have directed activity from there. Wouldn't have even been unreasonable, maybe, to do that. He could have delegated. He could have sent teams. He could have done any number of things, and it, and it would have been a legitimate leadership decision, but that's not what he did. He didn't hesitate. He himself went straight to the tower. He ran toward the danger, not away from it. And he traded his life for the lives of many who were in danger in his building. So in Mark 14, as we look at this, we see Jesus reaching a decision point. In some sense, like we talked about this in Sunday school, there was no decision to be made in some sense. The plan was set by God before time began. Jesus, the Son of God, knew this. But Jesus, the Son of Mary the very real man inhabiting flesh was now called to execute the plan. And it would be horrific. It would be unjust, violent, obscene, agonizing. It would mean spiritual and psychological anguish. It was also the opportunity to rescue the souls of many in this world that had been under attack by Satan. So let's, let's look at the text. Mark 14, verse 26 is where I'm going to begin. It's kind of a long section, but I'm just going to read through it, so bear with me if you would. As we read the passage, recall that 
This immediately follows the Last Supper. Jesus has already explained to them that His body will be broken and His blood spilled for a new covenant. He's already sent Judas out, saying, what you're about to do, do quickly. That's where we are. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, all, they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, had no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. It's a heavy passage. I want to focus on these points this morning. One, Jesus faces ultimate anguish in the garden. Jesus faces ultimate anguish. Two, Jesus faces ultimate betrayal. And three, Jesus chooses ultimate obedience. Jesus faces ultimate anguish, ultimate betrayal, but he chooses ultimate obedience. So there are certain moments in Scripture where we get glimpses of the Trinity, the mystery of this nature of our God, and this is one of those moments. Uh, Jesus, by whom all things were created, who has been one with the Father from all eternity, who saw Satan fall, who knew Abraham, this Jesus will now face the ugly reality of the eternal plan from the perspective of a mortal one who can suffer and die. This is not a surprise at all. John introduced him as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He told Nicodemus that he must be lifted up. He was told, he's told the disciples already directly that he will be killed by the Romans by crucifixion. So Jesus is not surprised. But just because it's not a surprise doesn't mean it's not hard. And it is very hard. Because Jesus truly has a choice. Mankind has been made in God's image, and that image includes a will. Adam and Eve had perfect freedom to do whatever they wanted. God gave them one rule, one law, to not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In their complete freedom, they violated the one law. And they became slaves to sin and to death. Their freedom had become slavery, and so it was for all of their offspring. Until Jesus... Jesus, born in flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, was not a slave to sin. His freedom was perfectly intact. It wasn't compromised. He was not enslaved by the power of sin. And so he faces a remarkable choice. If Adam and Eve had obeyed, their obedience would have led to what? Eternal life and freedom. But Jesus now faces a much more difficult obedience. His obedience will lead to separation, pain, humiliation, and death. Not ultimately, but immediately. He is perfectly innocent, and He doesn't deserve this. As God, He's set forth this plan from all eternity. But as man, will He choose to obey God and follow the plan? From eternity, He has known the intimate fellowship of the Father and the Spirit. Now, for the first time, he faces separation, and he really has a choice. And this is what causes the anguish. See, suffering and anguish aren't exactly the same thing. They're related, but they're not the same thing. If some suffering comes to you, you may hurt, you may suffer, you may be completely miserable. But what can really make it worse is when you have a choice to make, and it's not clear which way you should go. And when that choice is going to cause suffering one way or the other, with both sides are something terrible. 
it's, a, it's maybe a strange little illustration, but I'm reminded by, in this passage when, when Connie and I were young parents with Rachel. Uh, and and uh, we had brought her home from the hospital, and she slept her first night in a little drawer that we took out of our dresser because it was just the perfect size, and we knew that she would be contained and safe in this little drawer. But that way she could be near us, not in danger of us rolling on or anything like that. And after a while, we, we kind of graduated her to the crib, and sometimes if she'd sleep in, or she would wake up in the middle of the night to be fed, she'd stay with us. Um, but eventually we decided it was time. It was time for her to learn to sleep on her own. And we talked about this, and we agreed. It's time. So the first night, we decided time for, time for her to sleep by herself. We helped her fall asleep. We put her in her crib. And there she was, until she stirred in the night, and she realized she was alone. That was a strange feeling for her. Um, I'm a little tender because we just married her off a couple weeks ago, but really I'm okay. And she's in good hands, too. I talked to her last night. Um, But yeah, she's... She woke up in the night, and she's crying because she's alone, and she'd never been alone before, right? Something was different, and we had chosen not to go to her. So the crying got worse. We called back to reassure her, it's okay, it's okay, Rachel, we're right here. But she wanted to be held, and we agonized, right? We laid in bed together, and we just, we just agonized about this because she didn't stop. So she was very young, and she only knew a few words. But guess what one of those words was? Dada. Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you, it was all I could do to stay in that bed. But I did, I did. For her sake, and for ours, because she needed to grow. And, And what I'm asking is, do you see that in this passage? It is right here. Because Jesus calls out, Abba, Father. And it literally means Daddy. Mm. It's the intimate call of a child to his dad. It's not, it's not the formal addressing of a son to his father. right? This is a child who is talking to his dad. Daddy, Abba. Now, Rachel was a baby. I can't believe this. Sorry. I'll get a grip here in a second. Rachel was a baby. She did not understand what was happening. She just knew that she wanted her mom and dad. Now, Jesus was the most mature man. He wasn't a baby at all. He had perfect knowledge, a perfect understanding, perfect maturity, spiritual and emotional maturity. He had knowledge, wisdom, But what he dreaded was the pain of separation, of the suffering, the humiliation, the death to come. And dread, frankly, seems like too light of a word for what was coming. He comprehended it. It wasn't a vague fear, but a specific knowledge. And when he cried out, Abba, Father, and the Father didn't answer, because the decision had been made before time began, and now it was time. So Jesus, the Son of God, one with the Father, The one whom Abraham saw and rejoiced, he knew this. Jesus, the son of Mary, 
desperately wanted to find a different way. Have you faced anguish? The struggle of choosing what you know you must do in the face of certain pain? Or maybe your knowledge wasn't perfect. Maybe it wasn't clear what you should do. Sometimes our anguish comes without the clarity of what's best or what might happen. But do you know that we have a Savior who's faced this? He knows what we go through because He's gone through it too. Do you know that you can do what He did in the garden? He called out, Abba, Father. He promises what is best for us. He hears us and we can trust Him. So like I did with Rachel, sometimes He's quiet while we grow. But He is always there, always loving and always faithful. We can trust Him. We can call out to Him. So Jesus faced this ultimate anguish. Second point, Jesus now faces ultimate betrayal. So as Jesus faced His choice, He'd already begun to see the abandonment and betrayal that would come. And let me emphasize just a few of these betrayals that we see in this passage. And there, and there are more in other passages. I'm going to focus in, in just in Mark today. Uh, right before the verses we read today, as Jesus was sharing Passover supper with His disciples, Judas had gone out from them. Judas knew, or Jesus knew exactly where he was going. The others didn't, but Jesus did. Jesus had many disciples that followed him, some closely, some loosely. These were the inner circle. These were the 12. And that was now violated by Judas. It was broken. Jesus had told them that they would fall away and be scattered when he, the shepherd, was struck. Peter insisted that He would follow him even to death. But Jesus knew it wasn't so. Peter's bravado could only have made the knowledge worse for Jesus, knowing both the limits of Peter's love for him, but also knowing the grief that was coming for Peter when he realized his own failings. Now, in the time of Jesus' anguish right now, he had asked Peter, James, and John to stay up with him, to pray and to watch with him. These were the inner three. So we have a big group of disciples, an inner 12, and now we've got the core three that are always with him. Jesus, their master, had poured himself into them. He had allowed them to see healings, even resurrections that others didn't see. He allowed them to witness the transfiguration. This was the close inner group, right? Now, as Jesus, their master, is in obvious distress obvious distress. They couldn't even stay awake. When Judas actually brought the mob then to come and arrest Jesus, what was the signal? A kiss? An act of intimate friendship? An act of trust? A gesture of affection and closeness? That would be the signal to strike. How cruel. How wrong, how wicked. Now these are the obvious betrayers, but what about when he faced the high priest and all of the others? Remember who they were. Remember who Jesus was. Jesus knew, but they did not. They were the keepers of the law. They were the ones tasked with leading Israel in worship, in sacrifice, in repentance. And who were they leading the worship of? God, who stood in their midst. And who would they condemn? The Lamb of God, innocent, 
who stood in their midst. John said, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. That's how John put it in his, the beginning of his gospel. Mark in this passage says in verse 65, the guards received him with blows. What can we learn from this? Have you felt betrayed? Know that Jesus felt it worse. Have you ever been the betrayer? Know that Jesus offers redemption. Peter was brought back after his humiliating betrayal. At Pentecost, Peter himself preached to the mobs who crucified Jesus, telling them that they had crucified the very Son of God. And Scripture says what? They were pierced to the heart and they believed. Probably some of the same people who were in this room heard Peter on that day and were redeemed. So he came to save his very enemies. And here's the thing, you and I are among those enemies. And he came to save us too. Your betrayal, as wicked as it is, is not so bad that Jesus can't redeem it. Own it, confess it, but then let him pay for it and take it away. Because you can't afford it. Finally, I want to talk about the ultimate obedience. So Jesus, he faced the anguish, he faced the betrayal, but what's he going to do? We know that he's going to choose ultimate obedience. We've looked at his choice to follow this plan or not. In Sunday school, we talked about this. And it's, it's hard. It's really metaphysical and philosophical, right? Uh, the, the will of God and his eternal plan and how things work out in time. Um, but the fundamental fact is he doesn't owe us anything. He didn't have to save us, right? He could have chosen not to. It would have been just to allow us to be destroyed or to destroy us directly. That would have been just. But he chose not to do that. And this is we, we see in a little micro moment, in a little small local moment in Jesus' life, we see this coming, coming in, in to be in, in his prayer to the Father. So he's, control, he's in control, he's retaining his freedom, and he's retaining his power throughout this whole ordeal. And what does he do? I just want to call out a few things that he does. He sent Judas out knowing where he was going. Remember that he did that. He went to Gethsemane knowing that Judas would know to find him there. That wasn't an accident. He even rebuked those who tried to defend him by force. In Matthew's gospel, he even expanded further on this, saying, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And listen to this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So Jesus is telling Peter, look, if violence is what we need, I got that covered. I can bring 12 legions of angels here like that. And this, this little mob with clubs, it will be a joke. But that's not what's going on here, Peter. So put it down. What else did he do? Well, when he showed up for trial, or actually when, the, when his captors showed up, he, he kind of mocked them, didn't he? And he reminded them that, yeah, you came to take me like a criminal, but every day I've been in the temple, and I've never done anything violent. You could have you come and approached me any time, but you come now and you come with clubs? Really? Is that how you're going to do? It's kind of condescending. In, in front of the priests and the scribes, whom he had constantly embarrassed. Remember, 
All through the Gospels, we see these accounts. Someone comes up to, to trap Jesus or trick him into saying something embarrassing or wrong, and he outmaneuvers them. He makes them look stupid, every, foolish every time. Sorry, Laura. Uh, every time, he, he just outmaneuvers them. And what does he do now? He's in, he's in a trial with all of these intelligent people, but they're, they're not acting intelligent. The best they can do is repeat inaccurately some false accusations, and they're not even getting their story straight. If, if he can outmaneuver them in delicate and, and complex political issues, do you think he can handle himself against false accusers? He could have slew them right there. But he's quiet. Why? Why was he quiet? Because it's like he said, to fulfill prophecy. The prophecy must be fulfilled. That he's like a lamb before the shearers is silent. So he was silent. He allowed their lies and foolishness to stand. Because it was part of the plan. He says two critical things. Two critical things that we see from him in this, in this passage that tell us that he is choosing ultimate obedience. The first is, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And finally, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. This is Jesus' ultimate obedience. As the second Adam, the one who will obey God on behalf of mankind, Jesus chooses the will of the Father. Jesus sticks with the eternal plan. Where Adam disobeyed when it would not hurt him at all, Jesus obeyed God, knowing it would bring ultimate pain and suffering, but he did it for ultimate good. And this is why we worship him. Jesus obeyed unto death when we, like Peter, don't even bother to stay awake. Uh, if the musicians would want to come up, I just want to close with a few, a few thoughts. Uh, we, we've seen that, that Jesus faced the ultimate anguish. And let me just ask you, knowing that he knows anguish, will you trust him with yours? Or will you carry it for yourself? He can help you. We've seen that Jesus faced the ultimate betrayal. Have you been betrayed? Stick with Jesus. He knows what it's like. And he never betrays. But remember, you also are a betrayer. Let his redemption cover you. Don't let the story end with your betrayal. Let the redemption come. We also see that Jesus chose ultimate obedience. Will you embrace what he's done? Will you embrace his obedience, his sacrifice for our lives? And then, will you follow in his steps? Because he asks for that. Believe and follow. Believe and follow. That's what he asks for. We have a time of invitation every Sunday, and the time of invitation is general. If you want to come up and talk to Brother Kevin or to me about these matters of salvation, and what does this mean, what Jesus did, we would love to talk and pray with you about that. If you have any other things that you're praying about and you want to just come up and use this time, you're welcome to do that. If you have other things you need to talk to Kevin or I about, or if you just need to talk to God about, Please, use this time as a, as a time of response. We're called to respond to His Word. Father, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who paid the price for our wrongs, not because you owed us anything, but because you loved us. And Father, I pray that that reality would become so deep in each of our hearts that we can't help but love you more and more as we think about it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.